And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 92 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Monday, August 17th, 2015. Well, ABC, it's easy as one, two, three, as simple as you know it, do, re, mi. In a huge announcement last week, after we went to final production on our show, Google announced that it had wrapped up everything into a neat little, is that the word for it, little? Let's rephrase that. A gihugic $434 billion holding company called Alphabet. So G is for Google, N is for Nest, I is for ITA. What you forget is the tiny little travel business that Alphabet has, which generates more than $2.5 billion in revenue. I wonder what T might stand for. Hmm. Tweet, tweet, tweet. So whether you're going to love the idea or hate the idea, there's plenty of both out there, by the way, if you just go searching for it. It's an interesting move in a fast-moving space. We'll talk about it in just a second. But not to be outdone, Joe and I have formed our own little holding company. We're calling it Vowels. Yeah, that's right, Vowels. It's smaller than Alphabet because we're more focused and we integrate right into it. And you sound weird if you don't use us. We only focus on the A, E, I, O, and U of content. You ask why, and we say, sometimes. I'll let that one sink in. Okay, that's right. Our tagline is, we vowel to bring you the best of this week's content marketing news. That's right. I owe you the most awesome trends in content, strategy, marketing, and native advertising and rants and raves. It's the AI of marketing, the IAE in any event, and of course you'll find out when this old vowel was invented. When is it, you might ask? When you and I were brought together. So A, let's get you and I moving, and let's O open this show, and to help me do that is my friend, my colleague, my good, good friend, 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 and the phoneme of O Orange Content Marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Well, how, do you, how do you come up with this stuff? I mean, Seriously. <laughs> I mean, people are people are just really enjoying that little thing you did, or they're like, "This guy is from another planet." Like, what is going on? I hope it's the former. Well, I don't really care, quite honestly. You put a lot of care into the nonsense. I do absolutely. I really, put I a really lot of do care enjoy that. it. So, uh, so what's your take on Alphabet? You know, I think you know. There's there's been exhaustive research uh, and and sort of uh, words written about it. Um, I think it truly is their admiration of Buffett and what he's been able to do with Berkshire Hathaway and the way he's structured things because those guys really do admire him. And I think it's a smart move. Ultimately, I really think it's a smart move. It operates more as a portfolio of companies at this point. You know, they can – it seems to be easier to manage. The brand management seems a lot easier. I kind of don't get the sort of risky stuff that everybody is sort of – I just – it seems to me like a neat and much more tidy organization of companies rather than sort of the – you know, and enables them to go into other businesses and then jettison those businesses in a much more nimble way than they might other Otherwise, it feels like organized to me for some reason. I, I don't think know. it, you know, I think it helps the mission because this means that the other companies have, will have their own mission. They have their own CEOs, mm-hmm. and when you get to a certain size like that, it's very hard for Google's such a broad had such a broad mission. And now they can sort of split those up into things that I think are more, more meaningful. Well, yeah, At I mean, least that's the way it seems. I think Amazon, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't think Bezos would ever do it. 
but it's interesting to see if well, Amazon would do this. Apparently, Amazon is a hellscape to work for. Did you read that New York Times article? I, that I came read out? a part of it. It just yeah, it just came out like right before we recorded. I this. have not heard that. Was by it the way, yesterday I have not heard did it that come Amazon out? is a hellish place to work. I've heard that it's fine. I think that everyone has their own take, and I think and I read a couple articles on it. it just seemed like the the Times were going after a certain take and they made that take and I don't know I mean did you know that was the few that I read was what were they on a mission just to go after Amazon and just well it, I mean it certainly appears that way I mean the fact that they call out the fact that Amazon doesn't have a uh, a, a, a paternal a paternity leave you know father's leave for pregnancy um, when you know 80% of the companies out there don't have a paternity leave policy and so you know and they're looking at it like I guess every other company but to sort of throw them out there for that and not make mention of the fact that they're among the 80 you know I, whether you think it's right or wrong and I personally think it's great to have a paternity leave but to call them out for that and not make comment on the fact that they're among the 80% of other companies who don't have a paternity yeah. policy is kind of, you know, like, oh, okay, come on. Really? Well, you'd have you, said, you know, like most companies, right, Amazon exactly. doesn't have, or like, come on. I mean, everyone has their warts. And I, you know, you could, you could basically, if you turned it, you could look at any company on the planet, Google and Facebook and all the other wonderful companies that people work for. And you could say it was, it's the most horrific place in the world, depending on how you take <laughs> yes. your angle. Trust me, I've worked at the most horrific places in the world. I, I, <laughs> you I, know. I, You're the one I that knows. Know. You should have wrote the article. What they are. <laughs> well, according to my experience, oh, yeah, this is let terrible. Me, let, me, let me make it abundantly clear <laughs> which one is the worst. So even um, though it's the dog days of August here, do we have news? We all? do have a few bits of news. Yes, it is the dog days of August, and it is a slower time of year. Um, although it's interesting to me that the alphabet thing came out in the middle of last week, which was kind of fascinating, a big, you know, a big story like that. But anyway, so our first and top story of the show comes from uh, Fortune.com, Fortune Magazine online. And the headline is, Publishers Have Only Themselves to Blame for the Ad-Blocking Apocalypse. Did you know that it was an apocalypse, Joe? An I, apocalypse. I didn't, but now I do. It, it's an apocalypse. I'm, I'm glad it's I was set straight. It's an apocalypse on your house is what it is. Ad-blocking may be on the rise, says the article. But there's a rational response to the decline of advertising into the hellish landscape. Oh, there we go with that word again. Of Crap and gimmicks, says the opening. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately and more than a little hand-wringing about the rise of online ad blocking, in part because of a recent study that shows what appears to be a dramatic increase in the use of ad blocking software. Then it goes on to show this dramatic increase in the usage of ad blocking software. And this writer then goes on to make some conclusions about the idea of why publishers really have only themselves to blame for this sort of ad blocking. I mean, so... We're we're in this business, Joe. What do you think about this whole ad blocking thing? Well, the first thing is they don't this article doesn't really mention the rise of something that's sort of critical to this piece and that's mobile. Right. This is all really talking about the desktop experience which you and I I think we just talked about in the last episode. Maybe we've got a couple years left of what we really consider a desktop experience. Most everything and, and, and all the interaction and engagement that consumers have are on a mobile device of some kind, which right now, there's not a huge display advertising play on a mobile device. That's why we talked about native, because native can, it can work a little bit better on a mobile device. Um, I, I guess my, I wanted to get your gut check on this one, because it basically the article says it's in the last year alone, 
because uh, I guess according to the study by Adobe Systems and a company called Page Fair, uh, ad blocking software has increased 41% over the past year alone and cost publishers $22 billion in lost revenue. I, I don't know if that number is a relevant number or not, but what I think is really the case is it's not affecting the majority of publishers and media companies. It's affecting maybe the top 1%. Maybe the fortunes of the world, the Huffington Post of the world, the BuzzFeeds of the world. Well, it doesn't affect them because they're almost all native. But those types of companies that get gobs and gobs and gobs of traffic, not necessarily all targeted, and they just got to throw in, throw ads in front of as, as many people as possible in order to monetize it. I just don't see this, the niche publishers, especially the B2B publishers, being really affected by this because their revenue streams have already diversified. They've already been moving away from advertising. They're focusing on the event business, the paid content business, uh, you know, custom content services research, and they've been moving that direction for the last decade. So I don't think it's as much of an issue for the majority of publishers. But I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, what do you think? Uh, well, here's what I think. I, you know, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, so I'm, I'm sort of of two minds of this. One is, so. I'm, People are going to think we're having an affair. I mention him so much. Um, Tom Goodwin, who is the head strategist at Havas, um, I think he's over in the UK, I believe, and he wrote another LinkedIn post. I'm a follower, reader of his stuff pretty regularly, and he wrote a LinkedIn post last week, the end of last week, not covering this, but talking about advertising more general. And that I won't spoil the post because it's just great and you should go read it, but it's the tenor of the post was basically, I miss expensive advertising. And his point, which I think is a really good one, which is digital and sort of the commoditization of the ad. Um, and he talks about his the creation of his first digital ad, which was, you know, there wasn't enough pixels to actually do anything more than just a headline. <laughs> and so ad as art or the fact that, you know, when you had a print ad in Vogue magazine, it was a big deal. You spent a lot of money on it. And it was almost the fact of spending that much money on it that made it special and interesting. And, and I think that's a really interesting point um, when you start talking about how the commoditization of advertising and, and really, you know, everything from ad, ad blindness to all the other things that we've certainly talked about and the industry talks about um, ad nauseum about the ineffectiveness of, of banner advertising and digital advertising and now especially with the growth of mobile feeds right into your you know, you're what you're talking about, which is okay, but what we're really talking about here is the growth of content, you know, and how really what we're trying to do is create a more compelling experience for readers. So, to your point, these niche publishers, they may indeed be still, you know, hanging on to some measure of advertising, but they're moving on to native and other experimental ways of delivering value to both their readers and the people who sponsor the content and, you know, and, and, and how they make a business yeah. out of it. And so we'll add, you know, I think one of the things we're going to have to ask ourselves over time is, you know, especially, and we've talked about this, as content itself becomes more paid for, promoted, et cetera, within the context of the publication itself. And it becomes maybe, I mean, we've talked about sort of our, you know, discouragement of the idea of it becoming programmatic, but if it becomes programmatic, well, then the ad blocking will work there as well, because you're yeah. going to have to code it as such to be in order to be, you know, programmatically displayed. So will content start being blocked? And, you know, will this inevitably end up in another kind of 
arms race to try and get, you know, blocking of commercial messages versus the display of commercial messages. I don't know. But what I do know is is that it's the, the commoditization of the ad itself, which I would agree with Tom, has contributed to this idea of I, it's just noise now and adding a, you know, Apple basically adding in an ad blocker, which would have been unheard of, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago even. But now it's like, yeah, of course they're going to do that because why would you ever want to see a banner ad? It's just garbage, right? Except for Apple ads. That yeah, of course. yeah right, right. Which is a really important distinction, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, they're going to get through because those are the good ads. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the Glengarry ads. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yes. I guess my take, I think we're both in agreement here. The, the issue is if you work for any media company right now and you haven't had the discussion that display advertising as we know it is going away, you're not a really, really an innovative company. I no, think you that's just need exactly to right. understand that issue. So I don't know how much of an issue this is because this has been going on for years, and now it's coming to a head because Apple's, you know, their next release of Safari isn't that what it is? The next release of that's Safari right. will it's have Safari. Yeah, built right. in ad blocking software. But you know, there's already that. What's the what's the ad blocking software that they talk about in this article? Uh, uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Oh, what is it? Because I think it's important. AdBlock Plus. AdBlock Plus. So AdBlock Plus. But if you're an advertiser or an agency, you can get on the white list for AdBlock Plus. So which it seems kind of weird. It's like, oh, I'm going to sign up for this ad blocking software, but if I pay a little bit of extra. To add block plus, then I'm going to get through. So it's there's all it just the yeah. whole thing. It's an arms race for right. sure, right? You know, and it's you, know, you got people holding ransom, and I'm going to hold you for this, and I'm going to deliver you a little more revenue this way and that way. You know, it's it's a hustle. But I think that the the premise of the article is interesting. That yeah, very if, interesting. If the publishers are hurting themselves by by doing a lot of the things, and I mean. I just got one this morning, and I forgot what site it was, but it was a it was one of the sites I think that we we're focusing on today. And I unfortunately rolled over one of the banner ads, and then I got a full screen ad and a video and all. And I'm like, how do I get out of this? I don't know how to. <laughs> right, you I can work yourself article. into a little, you know, sort of maze of those things. And that, and you, uh, just a, a quick rant, that on a mobile experience is about to drive me insane. Oh, that's the worst. When the pop-ups come up on a, on a phone and you're and trying I can't to even click get the to little the X. X and you, can't right, you can't even X. get to it and then you're clicking through and then, it, and then you accidentally tap the ad and then it brings you to another site and then you can't click back because it's opened another t- – ah. It's very frustrating. And, that's, and I think that's the real key, and I think that's what they're trying to get to, is that publishers are killing themselves by that kind of experience. And that's they're just right. going to stop. You know, If it was Fortune doing this and we're trying to get to this article, we're just not going to go there anymore. we got to make that's sure right. we don't. And I think that happened in a lot of cases to, even though we're going to talk about Forbes next, to a lot of the Forbes content. Once you've got the, you, first, you've got the ad blocker in front of every page that you go to in Forbes. You cannot get to a Forbes article for the most part without going to that interstitial quote of the That's day right. and yeah. an ad or something like that or you might That's find right. this this relevant. And you're just sitting there waiting for the 5 4 3 Yeah, exactly. Two, Please before. <laughs> well, and then the other thing is the the sheer amount of contributors and I have trouble figuring out who's a quality con- contributor and who's not because if I see it's from Forbes, I don't know right away if it's quality. And right. that's my concern there as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of quality and speaking of not knowing, 
very interesting sort of segue here into Forbes, uh, which is our next story that we're going to cover here. And the headline is, The Journalists Who Refuse to Admit That They're Actually Content Marketers. The author here starts out this article by saying, listen, I found myself in a small but meaningful Twitter spat the other day with a very minor or distant member of the royal family. That is, that 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 might be my, my favorite lead <laughs> of a story. The fact that he felt compelled to let us know that he was going to Twitter spat with a member of the royal family. Tom Parker Bowles is a food critic and writer and also stepbrother, of course, to the future king of England. In his newspaper column, apparently he rather casually mentioned on his way home from a well-paid working vacation in Australia, he'd flown back Qantas and marveled at the food and said, quote, why can't all airlines be like this, he wrote in this uh, in a page on the actual publication, I guess, more properly devoted to the new openings in British restaurant scene. And then he tweeted back, apparently, that this was a wonderful example of, quote-unquote, content marketing posing as journalism. Um, and it was a plug for the airline. And, of course, they got into the back and forth of that. And then the article goes on to sort of describe his idea that content marketing is kind of what journalists are doing now, especially in the travel industry. And, you know, I don't know. What did you, um, what did you think about this, Joe? How, how, did it, how did it turn out for you? I have no comment oh no oh no oh dear i don't know if i want to talk about this because i totally disagree with the whole premise of this article yeah because if a journalist who has a column or a national column or any journalist for that matter is supported by a brand in some way and happens to say oh i like this or why can't all airlines be like this with the example they talk about in the beginning that has nothing to do with content marketing, yet the author says that this is content marketing. So right off the bat, I'm like, this person who says they're in the content marketing business doesn't know what they're talking about when it comes to content marketing. That's the issue that I have. Right. And the bigger issue, and I don't want to go too far on in a rant, but while I'm on this t- subject, I might as well. Um, this is, and I've had some conversations with some, some pretty smart people, actually, Rex Hammock, who runs... Uh, the the content agency Hammock, he sent me an email the other day just about the idea that content marketing as a phrase has been hijacked by a lot of the SEO agencies, and he's really upset about it and basically saying, you know, is there something that, that we could be doing about it? And my concern here, and it, there's probably six other articles from the last week that we could have included with the same exact thing that just talked about content marketing but didn't have the definition of what we believe is even close to what content marketing really is and should be and, and historically has been for the last 100 years. So my, my concern is bigger. And if you want to get back on the article, you and I can talk about the article and how silly it is, in my opinion. But, the, but I think the bigger issue is, do we have a problem with the term content marketing because of so many people just abusing it? Well, it's certainly not a problem with the term. It may be a, it may be it may be a problem with the way that we you know that certainly the way that we are evangelizing the term or educating on the term. Or, <clears throat> quite frankly, you know, I mean, look, when you one of the things that Gartner does that I've really liked over the past whatever number of years is their hype cycle. And when you look at the hype cycle, you know, it's it starts out and things get very very popular. And then it goes down into what's called the valley of disillusionment. 
And the Valley of Disillusionment, even though it's a valley, it's actually the peak of the hype of a particular concept or approach or product or, you know, it's, a, it's when it's at, at its most fashionable, right? It's its tr- most trendiest. Yeah. And you can argue that content marketing is now there, right? It is now at its most the, – and the way they talk about the Valley of Disillusionment is this is where the real work begins, because what happens here is, is that coming out of the Valley of Disillusionment, which is where the concept or approach has very little value as a, as a sort of foundational thing. But what happens is, is that coming out of that valley, people find the value out of it and, and find the productiveness out of it. And so we, certainly as CMI, have a distinct point of view on what that productivity is. You know, I'm certainly going to be speaking on exactly that in just two weeks in Cleveland. I'm going to be talking about what I believe the true value of content marketing really is to a business. I've seen it work. I, it's not that I. It's not that I. These are theoretical, hypothetical, sort of maybe unicorn-like strategies. I've actually physically seen them work. So you cannot tell me that content marketing doesn't work. I've seen it work. I've seen it function, and. The question is, how are we getting it done? And those that are sort of absorbing the term for their own sort of clickbait and or cynical and or just, you know, other otherwise ill-advised sort of strategies, I think fall by the wayside. Because what happens is, is that they sort of, they either, they get found out that, they're, that, that it's not valuable and or they ultimately dissolve into obscurity. You know, one of the articles, for example, one of the articles that you mentioned that we're not covering here is, you know, is out there and it basically the headline is content marketing doesn't exist. And then he goes through this sort of litany of why content marketing doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And it's all just idiotic. And it's, and it's, but, you know, and the reason I didn't want to cover it is because quite frankly, it's not worth discussing. Yeah. It's just, it's just so silly that it's, that elevating it to the discussion sort of elevates the idea that it's a rational point of view. And so at a certain level, we can't acknowledge some of the irrational points of view because quite frankly, they're just irrational. I mean, our job, what we love to do, our passion is to evangelize this process and this approach for business. It's all we can do. Those that are going to, abscond with the term are going to abscond with it and 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 you just got to hope that it's going to you know that it's going to work out as you and I have said a million times if it ultimately doesn't end up being called content marketing that's okay um, it, it just needs to be a function in the business and as we've also said many times on this show as well as at any engagement where I've been asked or 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 workshop or anything like that ultimately this we believe this is just going to be a part of marketing and is just a part of marketing more broadly so looking at it as a separate thing as this thing that's going to sort of exist as this little monster that gets bigger and bigger and bigger is a is not a productive conversation either it's how do we integrate this into an overall marketing strategy that helps us differentiate and move our business forward and this article i agree doesn't do a lot to further that conversation but at the same time i look at it and i go and i go for this particular article where he's talking about the idea is in a certain way those that are sort of out there you know because what he's talking about is the idea that journalists are out there doing it anyway and that they just sort of sort of get over it and there's a certain amount of that as well i i no first of all thank you for the first part because i totally agree with you but i didn't want to say it you say it much more eloquently 
and 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 in, and in its entirety, I might add, you, you have said that. So thank you very when much. When Swiffer is looking to create, <laughs> don't bring up my Swiffer pants. <laughs> don't you diss my Swiffer pants? Um, no, I, I guess the the issue that I yeah. So basically, the whole idea is your journalists are out there. It's going on. Uh, you're you're not pure journalists, but I just don't. I don't see how he got there with the whole thing, and I don't. But what is that called? I, I the first thing that I thought was was payola. Was, well, I was, don't think they. I don't think he ever. I mean, so he did, did he ever say that? The no, he's not doing it. Family guy got paid. No, but what he is, could have just been saying, you know what? I mean, I mean, I'll I'll say it. Qantas food is pretty good. I mean, I've flown Qantas a lot, and the food's pretty darn good. It's better than most airlines. Is it the best ever? No, but it's 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 really good. I mean, I like their food. But so, I guess so. The, so but so does that mean that I paid Qantas or am paid by Qantas? No, absolutely not. I just that's, happen so, to be commenting on something. I told, yeah, totally right. But if a journalist has an affinity for a brand and they make that known, I don't get it. I don't get what the issue is. Sure. I mean, look at Walt Mossberg, right? I mean, come on, right? I mean, he made an entire career out of being an Apple fanboy. And I think as long as you say, hey, I like this brand, that people know where you're at. Right. And take you at your word, knowing that, hey, you like Apple or you like Microsoft or you like really like Windows 10, which yeah. I know you don't. <laughs> Or you really love PowerPoint. <laughs> oh, my God. You love it so much. Oh, don't get me started just, on a rant on PowerPoint. You just removed though. it from every one of your appliances. I so. just, yes. For those who don't know, I posted a Dear John letter to my friend PowerPoint, who I've been working with for many, many years and have, will no longer use forever and ever and ever. Amen. Yes. All right. All right. What we Shall we move got? on to the next story? <laughs> All right, continuing our theme here, this comes to us from ClickZ, um, who we haven't actually talked about in some time. ClickZ. ClickZ used to be like the thing. I don't know what happened with ClickZ. But ClickZ, the headline here is, only 2% of marketers have very effective content strategy. And this is according to a new study, which is not new, by the way, um, for those of you who are going to click through to this. Uh, A new study by the CMO Council, content marketing is on the rise, but less than half of all B2B marketers think their strategies are at least somewhat effective. Um, Though everyone agrees that, quote, unquote, content is king. Only 2% of marketers believe their strategies are highly effective and all this kind of stuff. So um, we're going to pair this with another story that actually comes from Top Rank, um, which is Lee Odin's company, which is just a fantastic um, organization. And Lee's a great guy, friend, and certainly a friend of the show. Um, And the headline there is content marketing inefficiencies are costing B2B companies nearly $1 billion. And so this actually does reference a more recent study um, and the question, and this one that I actually, you know, in full disclosure, I commented on that, that when they put out this article, the BMA, uh, Business Marketing Association, put out this, um, they actually asked me to comment on it, and I did. Um, and they've talked about this idea that this, according to this new study, that there's a, there's a lot of waste, nearly billion dollars, that it gets wasted in the creation of content. And we should be clear there, content versus content marketing. So taking these two things together, Joe, what do, I mean, what do you make of all of this stuff? Well, the, the first study, uh, which I think we have talked about before, but just to yeah. go through, they say 2% of marketers have very effective content strategy. The first thing is, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I had to comment you and I were talking before. How many variables can you have in a in a question? Highly effective, very effective, moderately effective. Some place in the middle. I'm just like sort of effective, sort of maybe, maybe. A bit <laughs> right, right. I don't know. I'm feeling a little spicy over here. Right. I don't know how many of these. I'm not really dead. <laughs> Not actually bring, dead. Bring out your dead. <laughs> um, so I, <laughs> where does this show go? Why do people listen to this show? I have no idea. It must be because they're not going to get anything educational. What we do know is basically this study is a good follow-up to what we've been covering for the last six years. That's uh, between right. Content marketing and student marketing profs. They say 2%. We say 8% fall into the highly highly effective category uh they say the majority uh or about you know half to a little bit less the majority do not have defined content marketing strategies we've found the same thing we know that effectiveness is a problem because there's no strategy uh you have a lot of people focusing on very short-term sales goals or metrics that they're focusing on focusing on instead of building audiences this is stuff that we've been talking about for for a long long time so i don't know if any of this is necessarily new i know we've got a long way to go the one issue that i do have with the the article and i don't know if the study went this way but content strategy and this is where i don't know how many posts you and i have written on this content strategy is different than content marketing strategy yes and if you if you look at the content strategy industry you've got all kinds of things where you talk about governance and structured content, modular content, agile content. A lot of that fits into content strategy. Content marketing strategy is when you're really looking at you have a marketing uh, business development goal of some kind that you're trying to drive sales, savings, customer retention, loyalty in some way. Your content strategy goals may be different than that. So it's very important to, to look at that different. I don't know if the study looked at that. But. Well, I think yeah, no, I think they, I think one of the challenges there is that, you know, and and to, I guess to their credit or or maybe excusing them a bit, many businesses don't understand the differentiation. Nope. That's inside, right? totally inside baseball. I think that if yeah. somebody says, "Hey, I don't have a content strategy yet," I would know what they mean inherently. Well, it depends on who you're talking to, right? Yes. If the ID, if the IT guy comes up to you, or the tech docs person comes up to you, or the head of operations comes up and says, "We need a content strategy," it's like, "All right, I kind of know what you're asking." But if the marketing person comes up to you, or the CMO comes up to you and says, "What's our content strategy?" It's an entirely different yeah. question. Yeah, exactly. It could be digital so, asset management issue, content management systems issue. There's lots of different, and there's no right, and there's no reason to sort of parse those words too closely. They are related, certainly. You know, content marketing is a part of an overall content strategy, and I think that's really what gets a little lost here in this study is because when they looked at it, at least as far as I can observe, when they looked at it, they looked at content as a broad thing, right? So that means everything from the production of sales one sheets to brochures to PowerPoints for sales decks to, um, you know, to the webinars and thought leadership and the how-to community as well as the customer service and everything else that marketing may or may not have, an, have a role in creating for a B2B company, but some of which is content marketing. Yep. And and there's a lot that gets wasted there. I mean, I think that's I mean, anecdotally I would agree with their numbers. I mean, I don't I've I've yeah. never done a study on it, but I would totally agree the amount of content that gets created, especially because there's so many silos now in these larger B2B organizations where so many things get recreated and recreated and recreated because they're on this sort of on-demand 
machine of creation of content for sales, for engineering, for product marketing, for search engine optimization, for customer service and account services and all these different things. And marketers as a byproduct of everything that they're doing every day are just content generators. Yeah. And so much of it gets lost because there's not a great way to manage it and you know in either good digital asset management systems and or good content management systems and so and or because there's multiples of those things you know there's it is not uncommon for me to go into a business and have there be six or seven different ways to manage content from the blog software to the salesforce automation tool to the web content management system to the landing page creator and marketing automation system and all of these assets are all over the place and nobody has a good handle on them and a lot of that, it quite frankly, because content still isn't a strategic function in the business. There you go. Yep. It's just a byproduct of the things that everybody else creates. And so we create more of it, even in some cases, than the product or service that we actually put into the marketplace, yet we don't recognize it as a strategic function. It's just this thing that needs to be sort of managed by you know somebody as part of their job. And until businesses recognize, and when businesses, you know, when I see content marketing work or when I see a content strategy working, it is because the business has recognized that content is a strategic function worth investing in. And that's the difference. And and so, and that's when you see that waste number come way, well, way down. That's, that's what I wish that, so they interview in this article, they interviewed, I guess his name is Donovan Neil May, executive director of the CMO Council. Yes. This is what I wish. So basically, Neil May's recommendation uh, to marketers is, let me see if I get this right, something about, oh, beyond tailoring the lead approach, Neil May recommends marketers focus on targeting, measurement, and snackable content. I wish you would have responded to that the way that you just did, looking at it as a real strategic asset in the organization and then planning for it in that manner instead of I'll tell you what right now snackable content is not going to get us out of this hole it's not the answer we that's need the, that's more. the problem not the answer well that's a, yeah, a C, yeah a CMO is not going to say you know what what's going to really this is what's going to make our business next year let's break it up even we more we need snackable content that's it and that's your mantra throughout the entire year he puts it on the board snackable content we need more no we don't don't need any I, I more need, of that, and I'm, I guess well, a, you might, but you know, but you, but you don't. It's not a default answer. Well, that's the thing. Yes, you may need it, but actually, what I see is I, I see more brands, especially large enterprise brands, focusing more and more on snackable content and less on series and consistency, and really focus and targeting. Then, oh, we need more of this type because this is what get, gets engaged more on our website or on our Facebook page or whatever, or shared more. That's my yeah. I mean, it's well, it's it's exactly that. I mean, it's exactly that. It's you know, it, it content as a holistic strategy is encompasses the the whole business, right? And it is everything about how we manage content more fluidly, how we get it more consistent. You know, I mean, one of my favorite examples, and this is not, I didn't come up with this. This is something that I just repeat. I don't even know where I heard it first, but it's just such a great example of a great use of content strategy is if you're a business and a, a product manufacturer and you manufacture a product that goes against you know a hundred and a hundred different languages and you have to produce manuals in a hundred different languages how you phrase something the way that you write that manual could save millions of dollars in the way that you word something 
and the number of times that you have to translate it and the way that it gets translated and, and how that it gets reused in component parts and all that kind of stuff, that's content strategy. That is the heart of a great content strategy. And then part of that is understanding how to interface with marketers to tell you know, big, uh, big story. As, as I like to say, content marketers, you know, or content strategists, rather, they, they operate with fine pens and pins and needles. And content marketers, we content marketers, we basically write on the walls with big magic markers. Um, and so, and, and, and those two need to work together. And it's really important, but it's, it's, it's different and related all at the same time. Well, that's the issue. I mean, even if you look at tech docs and you say, okay, I want to, I'm getting into the structured content business and I'm going to look at creating that piece of post-sales content that before just tech docs was involved in. But now you understand that your sales and your retention and your loyalty is driven a lot by that experience they have with the content. So then that's where marketing is starting to get involved in some of these experiences. Right. And if if that's set up correctly in a modular way that you can take pieces part. So let's say instead of one PDF, it's, you know, uh, 20 different pieces in an XML document that you can mix and match and figure out that maybe the next time that you're going to launch a particular program to a particular targeted audience, you'll know right away that you have the content versus, hey, you, I didn't even know it was in that document. <laughs> I had right. no idea. But now you do, and you've saved money right off the bat, and now marketing's involved in that because you're looking at the entire customer experience instead of just trying to get them into close as you can to sale before you pass it off to sales. You might even say it's intelligent content. You might say that. You might Some people. That. Some, Some people, people might say that. Some people might say that. We wouldn't ever say that. No. Some people might say that. Bring out Ooh. your dead. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking Did of you- bring out your dead, um, we have a wonderful, wonderful sponsor that we need to talk about. We do, absolutely. Because they know content. They know content strategy. They do. They do. Uh, this old marketing is sponsored by Emma. Email marketing for the modern brand. Emma is a provider of best-in-class software and services that helps organizations of all sizes get more from their email marketing. In Emma's new Modern Marketers Field Guide, which I think you and I like the title of that, Modern. I do. Mar- modern like Marketing. Yeah, Modern Marketing as a, as a phrase has been out there for quite a while. But we like that. like the field guide. I like it. We're going to ha- get our hands dirty. We're going to learn something. We don't have to be scared anymore. You'll learn how to identify and use the right marketing tools to craft emails that truly stand out in the inbox and create a personal experience for every subscriber. I think your word is experience and my word is subscriber. I think I love it. And And they they go together. And they got both of them in there, like chocolate and peanut butter, my friend. Oh, I was going to say peanut butter and jelly, but now that you say chocolate and peanut butter. Chocolate and peanut butter. Or mint and chocolate. Subscribe. Oh, well, that's good, too. Or or uh, Lucky Charms too. with the, the, just the marshmallows, and then I actually forget that because I just want the marchmallows. I only want the marshmallows <laughs> in my Lucky Charms. I don't want. I, okay, side note, I have to say this. <laughs> so yeah. what, my buddies and I, we always make fun of. Hey, couldn't can we just get the marshmallows in Lucky Charms because I don't want the other stuff. I just want the marshmallows. And we went to a place on seventy one, which I think you stopped at Grand, Grandpa's Cheese Barn. Did you oh, stop I there love before Grandpa's Cheese Barn? That was so awesome. So, I had such a good time there. So next to grandpa's cheese barn is the fudge place and the sweeties yep. it's called sweeties Absolutely. they yep. had just a package of the lucky charms marshmallows that was it just the marshmallows <laughs> only and i took a picture you, know, you can get that online you can buy that online i didn't know this was a yeah. thing until i yeah. saw it and i thought it was the greatest thing 
ever that there was a business that just separated. I know they don't separate, but in my my head, there's somebody that's actually <laughs> gets going down the <laughs> manufacturing line, and you're taking out the bits you don't like, your Lucky Charms, and packaging the rest. Anyways, back to the field <laughs> field guide. Modern Marketers Field Guide can be downloaded at bit.ly slash myemma-field-guide. That's bit.ly slash myemma-field-guide. That's all lowercase. Super, super thankful to Emma for, again, sponsoring the Assault Marketing. I think we figured out that they were they're tied for our top sponsor at PNR's The Sold Marketing. So, That's Emma, awesome. if you want to keep your status, you're going to have to keep re-upping. I mean, it's got to be working for you. We, lo- we love our sponsors, and thanks to Emma for coming through for us again. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. The Lucky Charms Marshmallows of email marketing. Oh, man. There you go. I, after this is done, I'm going to get some. I'm, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go splurge on some Lucky Charms. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen. It is your favorite segment of the show, our rants and rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that makes us, you know, makes us feel like a big vowel or, you know, that the imputation was totally without basis and, in fact, and in no way a fair comment at all. So let's see. I have you have the first because you have this old this I, uh, switcheroo. You I have know. this old marketing. This everybody's week. like, "Oh my gosh, Joe has this old marketing." It's uh, it's interesting that that happened. But here we go. So this is my this is comes from the Observer and a special shout out to Brian Eisenberg. Uh, he had it on his Facebook page, and I saw. Oh, it. I love the Eisenberg. Rooms. Oh yeah, they're they're fantastic, and uh, this is a great article. And if um, if you're interested in and brands on YouTube, you, you want to read this one. So this is called Nike's Secret to Success on YouTube. It's not the viral video. And, of course, I saw the headline, and I'm like, oh, thank God, I've got to read this. So anyways, the, the article goes through uh, a, a strategy that YouTube is trying to push out to a lot of its big brands, and it's called the Hero Hub Hygiene Strategy. Um, so basically, the whole idea is, First of all, you've got hero content, and that's what you would, I think, consider your your big viral content a p- or piece of video where it, you might have a lot of paid behind it. It may look like a commercial of some kind, uh, but it's a little bit longer, maybe a minute or two. But the kind that you're thinking could possibly go viral, that's your hero content. Hub content, which is the regularly released videos tailored to customers' passions and interests. And this is a regular content series. So whereas the hero content is once in a while – Different uh, types of content we're focusing on there. Hub is a consistent regular series around something usually entertaining in some way, but it's consistent around a current theme. And then hygiene content, that's your what I think Jay Bear would call utility-type content. It's always on videos optimized to address uh, potential customer interests, and these are often how-to videos. Now, you can go through the article for the whole thing, but the, the thing that interested me is this stat. So most people think that the hero content is responsible for the most new subscribers on channels like Nike on YouTube. But you would be wrong if you thought that. The win- their big uh, hero content video that went viral, Winter Stays it's called, and it's, it's on the article if you want to check it out, resulted in 75,000 new subscribers, and that's about less than 4% of the entire channel's total subscribers. What they found out is the hub and the hygiene content is what's responsible for most subscribers. Now, you and I know this. Like, this is like, this is stuff that should be like, of course, but most people don't think of it this way. So it's the consistent content, the video series, the ongoing helpful information 
that's the stuff that really builds your YouTube subscriber base. So this article is all about that. I love the the idea of its video series is really where it's at uh, compared to you know your big oh we've got to go viral type strategy. But the one thing I wanted to add before I head to to your rant or rave is they have a list in here of the top subscribers by brand. So Red Bull has 3.7 million. Apple's on here 2.1 million. Nike's 1.8 million. You know, right off the bat, you think oh, these are huge numbers. But the first thing I thought of was, why are they so small? Because if you look at, uh, <laughs> let's throw out some really crazy uh, YouTube stars like PewDiePie or like Matthew Patrick, Matt Pat, who's presenting a content marketing world. You know, PewDiePie's got 38 million followers. Uh, you know, Matt Pat, uh, who never had any resources compared to any of these companies, has almost 5 million subscribers. So it's just interesting where. And I wrote that article a couple of weeks ago that I said, in a lot of cases, startups and smaller companies have it easier than larger brands. I think it's interesting that you've got these one-person shops that are able to get well, way more subscribers than your Red Bulls and your Nikes that have these huge content factories and multi-millions, if not billions of dollars behind them. So I just think it's interesting that focus and passion play such a role and those those types it anybody can get into this and do this effectively and i don't think it's where hero content is at i think it's that consistent video series and that's where you pick up your subscribers so i love the article i i I love that when i saw this link i i i'm raving about your rave because it's just i mean it's so i mean here's my my favorite part of this is when the article taught and because this has been the sort of soapbox i've been on of late which is (laughs) the idea that they don't look at it in a, as any one single video. They look at it as the accumulation, right? It is the, it is the collection itself that is the valuable thing, not any one sort of piece in it. And that each piece has a purpose, whether it's hygiene, hub, or hero. Each piece has its purpose, and they think about it in that way. And to your point, they probably invest a lot more in those hero videos than they do in the hub or the hygiene ones. But they know that there's a purpose behind them, but it's the it's it that they measure the, the 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 whole thing, not just the individual videos in it. And that is something that is lost on a lot of businesses these days where the measurement of the individual white paper or the individual email or the individual video, the individual infographic becomes the way we try and sort of sort out some sort of marketing measurement rather than sort of, okay, what are we actually building? What are we what are we building here? And for them, it's a you know, it's a it's a channel of subscribers and it's it's I I just love that angle on it. It's uh, yeah, it's fantastic. So ba- basically must read I think for any brand marketer. To, and do you do you have a a rant or a rave this week for you? I have a rave this week myself. Um and it is a short one so that we can get to our this old marketing. It is a short one, but I just have to mention it because it got forwarded to me in so many different forms. Um and of course I didn't miss it. You know, there was no way to really miss this um which was <clears throat> if so this last week if you didn't notice, um, Target had quite a week. Uh, the retailer Target, that is, of course. 
And so what happened was, if you didn't know, they decided they were going to be coming out and phasing out their gender-specific signage in their clothing of all their stores. Um, and so the official announcement was basically said, look, you know, basically it said something like, we're going to phase out gender-based signage to help strike a better balance. And they used the example, for example, in the kids' bedding area, the signs will no longer feature suggestions for boys or girls, just kids. In the toys aisles, we're going to remove the reference to genders like boy toys or girl toys, including the use of pink and blue and yellow and green paper on the back walls of the shelves. You'll see these, which I think is fascinating and interesting and sort of, you know, I mean, certainly who cares really ultimately, but kind of, kind of an interesting thing to do. Well, the, you know, a bunch of people went absolutely ballistic outrage. They were all outraged, which always fascinates me of how, how little it takes to outrage people <laughs> these days, but, but they were outraged and they started, they started, you know, letting target hear it in the social, social media sphere. So this guy, um, and I'm losing his name right now, which is uh, – his last name is Melgard. But, um, but basically, he set up a sort of faux Facebook page um, and started to take in some of these requests. And he is a funny, funny guy. I mean, they, they were classic. And he, uh, none of them were politically correct, by the way, but, but some of them were just – But he was, he was posing as, as target customer service. He was posing yeah. as a target customer service rep and basically saying, you know – and, you know, and he was getting, you know, tweets, you know, and Facebook posts like, you know, I'm never going to shop at this dump store again. Take your natural gender and shove it, you idiots. And then he would respond with something like, just like your worldviews, your cover photo is incredibly outdated. We'd love for you to come into our new Target Photo Express <laughs> and get that baby touched up. And then he posts this, like, antiquated 1880s photo. <laughs> just so good. Some of these are so great. Um, you know, you've seen them, some of them, but just they're so darn funny. And so – and that's not my rave. My rave is – well, I mean, certainly I'm raving a little bit about that, but my, my rave – my favorite thing is that Target responded. And, of course, publicly in a press release, they said, you know, hey, listen, we just want you to know that, you know, this is outside of us. We didn't do this. They've shut – you know, they had Facebook shut it down, all that kind of stuff. But then they did something. It was just so tasty. And, and the link we'll post in the, ad, in the show notes is from an Adweek article that talks about this where <clears throat> Facebook – it, it was just so wonderfully dry – um, because, of course, you know, what he was really doing was trolling the whole – all these people who were hating on Target. So Target actually posted to their their social channels. So if you know those little toy trolls that you've seen at the top of pencils or that they hang from the rearview mirror, those – you know, they got the crazy hair. And they basically posted a picture uh, of those trolls – as a big picture, and the Facebook post basically said, "Remember when trolls were the kings of the world? Woohoo! They're back, and they're only at Target stores." And it went completely nuts. And of course, even Melgard basically responded and said, "You guys are awesome." It was just such a wonderfully dry way to say, even though we can't say we were for this, we were with you and we have your back. And it was just a, I thought, just a wonderful, wonderful use of using content. Um, this, you know, if this doesn't make hug your haters with Jay Bear, I don't know what will. But it's just a really, really fantastic. Oh, he said because I know I think he was done with the manuscript, and I think he says I've got to find a place for this. And, yeah, and it's just haters. it's it's just really, really wonderful. So it's just a, so, and I just wanted to rave about it. Yeah, basically, 
if you go through some, because there's there's hundreds of articles out there about it, but it's laugh out loud funny. Some of the responses, yeah. <laughs> you know. And Target is not known historically, right? So over the last couple of years, Target has had its trouble with social media and being fairly deft with uh, content. And this was just really, really very, very well balanced and done. I just thought it was it's worth raving about when they when they, when they get it right. Yeah, very good. I loved it. I loved it. Well, I have uh, this old marketing this week. I know. You get the week off. Um, And this was actually forwarded to us by Roger Parker. And if you don't know, uh, Uh, Roger 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 is an outstanding CMI supporter, contributor, writes some of the best stuff that we have on the platform, has been a writer for for 30-plus years. Uh, thought leader in the industry. So he sent us this article, and this article... He was one of the original Gerber babies. How about I that? I know, I didn't even... Yeah, isn't that something? That's yeah. so crazy. Um, so basically, Roger's done more than more in five years than I've done in my career. Anyways, <laughs> uh, he sent this article to us, and I thought this was a great This Old Marketing, and you agreed with it, Robert. So this comes from an article called... Uh, from the Huffington Post business section from John Fox who's founder and president of Venture Marketing. 30 years ago, Aldous Pagemaker changed life on planet Earth. So this is from last month. It's a few weeks ago. So it's hard to believe. 30 years ago in July, uh, Aldous Pagemaker was born. And uh, they basically go through the history of how this happened. And Roger Parker, our own Roger Parker, was involved in how this happened. And we thought that this would be an amazing, this old marketing example. So basically... If you don't know about Aldous Pagemaker, you know, typesetters ruled the world in the time, and it was very hard for anybody who was trying to print electronically, format text to run through typesetters. And then Aldous Pagemaker comes along that can typeset this for you, and it's just a miracle, and it affected advertising agencies and, and writers of all kind. And this product called Aldous Pagemaker was you know, on, this, on, the, uh, on the Macintosh, and it was available. And a lot of people were maybe not getting it as quickly, not educating themselves quickly to the opportunities in that. And Rogers saw that if they didn't educate this audience, that they might lose an opportunity. And by the way, Guy Kawasaki, who, who used to work at uh, Apple, uh, says that Aldous um, Pagemaker saved the Mac which I thought was interesting yeah, as, as background. So Roger's involved in this, and he approaches Aldous, uh, Aldous Corporation with the idea of a premium book to introduce non-designers, because this is a new deal. This is not professional designers, typesetters. These are non-designers to the fundamentals of what it takes to, to create an attractive, easy-to-read design and page layout, and basically pitched Aldous on this idea of creating a basic design manual. So went to Aldous and said, "Hey, I'll do this work for hire, uh, and it, you know, basically you don't have to pay me royalties. You can do whatever you want. Create the Aldous guide to basic design." They ended up accepting it, and they loved it so much it started to take off. And Roger said, "This is a career pivot in his own life. Uh, amazingly successful. More and more non designers started to purchase this, and Aldous came back and said, "Hey, like we want to we want to make this even bigger." So they created another version of this called Looking Good in Print, which was a more mainstream. Of course, it moved from the, the basic like white paper ebook field of the feel of the Aldous Guide to a Looking Good in Print, which looked like a real book, looking felt like a real book, praised by the New York Times as you got to get this book. And Roger mentions in this article, which I think is so funny, as an aside for two years, Looking Good in Print was the Boston Public Library's most stolen 
nonfiction book, which he thinks is a <laughs> dubious that. distinction, but love a distinction nonetheless. So it's just interesting. And this is an example of this old marketing that sort of, you know, one person really felt was looking after the, the corporate needs of Aldous and said, hey, this is, this is something you need. If you want this thing to grow, you're going to have to educate these people on what good design even means, at least from a basic standpoint. And it came out, and of course, it really sped uh, sped more and more people getting this on their Macintosh. It, of course, helped the Macintosh, and uh, and now I think thirty you know thirty years later, I think it probably had a lot to do with where we are from a word processing standpoint in general. So, yeah, great, great example great of this old Love marketing, and and now Roger's move from being a Gerber baby uh, to uh, <laughs> CMI contributor. He still has that baby face, though. <laughs> Try to map that. Bet that career path <laughs> from Gerber baby all the way to content marketing contributor expert. Right. So there you go. Fantastic. All right. So, I mean, well, I, I, I think I know the answer to this, but your head's down this week, right? I mean, it is. Heads down. Oh, man, we're working on the opening video. Uh, we're working on AV sequencing. Uh, we're getting everything set up. I'm looking at maps of the exhibit hall and all kinds of stuff. So really, it's just interesting this year. It's different. It's almost like two years ago because I've also got the book launch for Content Inc., because we're launching, they have so many launches there. We're launching the documentary, the story of content, which you star in, by the way. Which no, I think please. you knew that. Hey, you're hey, you're on the poster. You made no, the I'm po- not. Yes, is that true? You made oh, the poster God. starring oh, Robert don't, Rose. Don't also, let that dissuade you, folks. It's really good. It also says starring Joe Polizzi, but it does say starring Robert Rose. So yeah, so we're launching the documentary, the story of content. It's a 45 minute documentary. It's so really we've good. got a, a VIP reception right before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame reception on the 8th that's in Cleveland. And then uh, I've got my book party, my book launch party will be on September 10th as part of this. So I'm just, you know, you know the book thing. I'm asking for reviews, getting everything going. I'm probably doing two or three interviews a day on this thing, just trying to trying to get it rolling. And oh, by the way, Content Marketing World is around the corner. So, but I'm not, I'm not that busy. It's not, it's not, it's not that, it's not that bad. I gotta do my. I haven't touched my opening keynote yet, so that there I have to, have to do. How about you? What are, what are you uh, well? I in, in addition to working on my my session and my workshop, finalizing that. Um, I am one of those guys who does the the slides well beforehand, so I'm finishing that. Um, I have a trip this week to San Francisco to go see the lovely folks at Robert Half. Um, the big uh, HR company, and 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 uh, work with them. Do a little bit of uh, a content marketing workshop up there, a boot camp, two day boot camp, which should be just a load of fun. Um, and then I'm off to Mexico City for a couple of days uh, the following week, um, and uh, and going to see some folks there for a for a strategy engagement. So I'll be busy leading up to the week, and then I have I'm taking a week off just to sort of get everything ready because I want to roll into Cleveland just hot and heavy. You're not like consulting uh, Trump on building the wall, are you? <laughs> no, no, no! Oh my gosh, that's a whole other rant. <laughs> All right, fantastic! Busy okay. week ahead of us. You got it. It is a busy week ahead, indeed, and that is it. I hope you guys have a great busy week uh, for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, we do love those story ideas. Keep them coming, folks. We really, really do appreciate it. Hashtag this old marketing on Twitter. 
And, you know, give us an email if you like email, thisoldmarketingatcontentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 92, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we talk about will be available in the show notes, uh, which we, of course, put into the actual show. And, of course, in the blog post that appears on Saturday at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.